All right. That, that's nice. Okay. This is Kevin Evans with Chapter by Chapter Live Class. And uh, we are with Crossroads Assembly of God. And we are hip deep in John chapter 11. We're right smack in the middle of the fourth gospel. And uh, last week we started John and uh, we got really, really involved into the phrase she sleepeth and, and uh, didn't get much further than that. And so we stopped at about verse 16. And uh, just as a recap before we jump in at verse 17, uh, John, uh, the, 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 the apostle, wrote this chapter. The entire chapter is devoted to the resurrection of Lazarus. And John, unlike the synoptic gospels, takes specific instances. In fact, it's specific numbers of instances. There's a structure to, to his book. And he gives an elaborate explanation of instances. And each one of those miracles or events have connotations to the overall ministry of Christ or it teaches something that's specifically profound. And it's, uh, and I honestly believe they are the best of John's 30 years worth of sermons because he wrote this at the end of his career and it was at least two, possibly three decades after the Synoptic Gospels were written. So this is written much later. And so he spends all this time on the resurrection of Lazarus, which tells us that the resurrection of Lazarus is important. I think it was a significant turning point and in, in, in Christ's uh, ministry. And I think things changed after the resurrection of Lazarus. Uh, things got very, very serious, both in persecution and in his followers, because this was a big deal. So uh, last week, we talked about the relationship of Lazarus and his sisters. And in my humble opinion, Simon the Pharisee, who I think was either a brother or a father and the head of their household, uh, and uh, but that but again, that's arguable, and you're you're welcome to your interpretation. Uh, and uh, Christ is uh, north; he's in the uh, I forget where is he around Capernaum, and now he's telling his disciples that he needs to go back to Judah, where they just tried to stone him. And Thomas has warned him. You know, they they did throw rocks at us last time we were down there, and you, you're wanting to go right back down. And I imagine, you know, you know, boss, they're still mad. So, why do we want to go back where they're throwing rocks at us? You know, oh, I'm so sorry. Are you okay? Uh, Liz is in survival. <laughs> oh, Liz Divig, I just want that you to know that Yek just spilled coffee all over at your Bible. And uh, uh, if he can't fix it, I will later. Okay, so we'll, we'll, we'll make this better. There may be some water stains, though. Yes. It says here that he went to Bethany. Yes. That's in Judah. Uh, Bethany is uh, just north of Jerusalem. It is right on the line. It, it, it's, it's, as you come in from Capernaum into Jerusalem, you come through Bethany. It's where they stayed on the northern side. Yes, it is technically in Judah. Okay. But it, it's, it's within miles of the kingdom line. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's where they were. And he's about to go south again. And Thomas is going, well, I guess we're going to go die with you. And that's where we left because Thomas was a bit of a pessimist. 
You know, he gets a bad rap. I yes. like Thomas. Thomas always talks smack. Of it. Thomas called it like he saw him, you know? There you go. Okay, so we're going to pick it up at 17. Uh, Christ has delayed way too long and is now heading um, to see back, back to uh, Bethany. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. It's written like it was a surprise, but I don't think it was a surprise. I think that was deliberate. Uh, verse 18, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, uh, she went out to meet him, but Jesus stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. It's like, this, first she has hope. It sort of sounds like hope. And then, and then she rationalizes it. Uh, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into this world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Then Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping. Uh, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have, you, uh, uh, the, where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he have opened the eyes of the blind man and kept this man from dying? Hmm. Yes. Yes, that is an interpretation. Thank you, Joe. <laughs> I'm sorry. We had 15 minutes of argument before this started. So <laughs> did you have something, Chris? You have a convert, sir. <laughs> yeah, that was his argument. Yeah. Oh, side note, he said that he cried, he wept because he had deep divine sympathy. Um. How 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 diplomatic of you? That's nice. You you were not embracing the spirit of this class. <laughs> Don't take the middle road. Could you even cry? Could you get got, just got chewed out by Mary? That's funny. I don't know. <laughs> well, but also, here, here, there's so many interpretations, and when the Bible doesn't address it, then apparently God says this is not much of an issue that I want you to sit and argue about. But on the other hand, could He also just be seeing the results of sin? This is death is a result of sin. That death is a fallen nature. This is what not Christ or you know, and God in, you know, intended for man, just to see the effects of sin, the, the 
surprise over just the moment of this is what sin brings to the world. But I think that's what would have made him easily sorrow, knowing that, you know, lack of faith would have made him frustrated, but knowing that him being led astray through their own interpretations and not applying the word of God, lack of faith, like you were saying, you know. I, hopefully that I have no problem with that. I really don't. My only problem is he doesn't cry any other time for any of these acts of lack of faith that show throughout the gospel. This is the only time he cries about it. That's my only thing. I, I don't have a problem with that interpretation. I just, Lazarus is one of his best friends, too. That's why he stayed home when he found out because he knew he was just going to raise him from the dead to show God's glory. See, he, Jesus, he knows he can connect last. I mean, yeah, he already knew it. Without <laughs> even knowing like all the things that he knew at that moment, just reading that line makes me want to tear up. Like, just being a, an empathetic person. Mm -hmm. You know? And empathy, that's the thing to strength about. Empathy is you, you get into what the issues of the other person and the other people around. Empathy. cultural background here. Um, the Pharisees, for at least a couple hundred years prior to Christ, taught that the soul hovered over a dead body for three days before it went on to heaven. It was not a scriptural thing. It was almost a Jewish superstition. And I think part of that comes from the fact that there are instances where people go into a coma that looks like death, and then they come out of the coma, much to everyone's shock and surprise. So we have to explain that in some way in those odd instances. Uh, and so their explanation is that 
the soul hovers for three days and it sees all of the mourning. And then after three days, the body starts to decompose noticeably by the, three, the third day. And then the soul goes on to heaven. And I think that also justifies the entire Jewish funeral industry. Because while the soul is hovering, watching over you, uh, you've got to do a good job of their funeral because they're still there watching. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so, you know, dad's still there. So we want to make sure that we follow the will and how we, you know, handle the funeral and all. So uh, that actually might help in the Western culture some. Never mind. I don't want to chase a rabbit. Is my mother listening to this? But my mother, I don't know. My, my grandmother, my esteemed grandmother, who I was, you know, deeply loved, uh, was widowed. In the last 10 years of her life, every time I went to visit her, she would walk through the house telling me who's going to get what in the house when she passes and explaining to me in detail her plans for her funeral. It was very important that we get this right. And there were, there were, there were dresses that she had to wear. The blankets went to certain people. It was, it was detailed. And uh, I would go over and she says, Kevin, you need to make sure that this is what happens at my funeral. And I would say, Grandma, Mom is the executor. You need to be talking to my mother, not me. I know your mother is the executor. It is your job to make sure that this happens the way I want it to happen. Yeah, I'm the executor of the executor. That was her plan. And so, of course, my grandmother passed away and my mom handled the funeral and she took all of my grandmother's 15 pages of detailed instructions, wadded them up, threw them away, and had a funeral. She's the executor. You know, that's how it works in Western culture. You know, now if, if my mother was convinced that my grandmother was hovering over her, <laughs> I think there might have been a different approach to it all. Oh, I think the Okay, so there's that. So, so Lazarus was not only dead by Jewish uh, tradition, he was, and I quote a commentator, good and dead. There was no question. He was wrapped up in the tomb, tomb sealed and decomposing by day four because they would have made sure that that happened. There was no chance that there was a mistake in his passing away. And that is why Christ drug his feet, most commentators feel. Uh, we are in the mourning phase of the Jewish funeral, if you want to call it that. And what happens, because you know, they, the deceased is hovering over you, 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 you want people uh, wailing in mourning uh, the passing of, of, of the patriarch in your household or whatever. And uh, you want to make a public show of your funeral. It's important socially. So if you only have two sisters and they're doing all the cooking living in this house, who's going to be doing all the mourning? And so there were literally people that would hire themselves out to cry at a funeral. So they didn't know the deceased. 
but they would go and not, and, and there are two different words in uh, the Greek. Uh, one is for weeping, which is what Christ did. He was tears in his eyes weeping. And then there is a word for what we would say in English as wailing. And they were, and when you hired a mourner, they weren't there to weep. They were there to wail. They were there to be out in front on the porch, uh, wailing in anguish over the loss of, of whoever had passed away. It was a public announcement of this household's grief. And if they didn't see that your house was in mourning, they needed to be able to hear that your house was in mourning a block away. And that's how it always was in Africa. Really? The same thing? You always heard before you ever knew somebody announcing it. Just go to the sound. You knew somebody had died. Yeah. That's right. And, uh, and if they don't, if they didn't have family members, like you said, they hired them. Yes. The families will hire them. To be there. But you should see what it's like if they're raised from the dead. Oh, I bet. Dead raised the dead? He likes to drop little hints like that. We'll have to beat it out of him later. <laughs> um, well, this is neither here nor there. I had an acquaintance once who refused to go to funerals because there was nothing, quote unquote, there is nothing sadder in this life than the sound of a wailing mother at the funeral of her child. <clears throat> and and I, I get that, you know, but, uh, you know, I was going to a mutual friend's funeral and he go, I'm not going. You know, he, he just, he, he, didn't, he didn't do that. I guess so. Yeah, it is tough. Three? Oh my gosh. They were all shot in the back of the head by <laughs> They just got out of vacation Bible school. Oh. Really? Yeah. Wow. So that's when I go, where's the mother? Yes. I knew, I knew where they were. They were in heaven. Okay. Continuing with cultural tradition at the time. Uh, at this period when we're hiring people to come wail on the porch, um, it was kind of a tradition, I don't know how to describe this, they would sit. It wasn't a way, you know, in, in the Western tradition, you sit with the, with the body before it's buried a day. That's the, the, the old thing that we don't do anymore. And, uh, and, and it's where you find your closure. But uh, the body wasn't, there it had already been entombed, but the mourners would sit for a certain period of time. And Mary, in this case, and it seems to indicate that that's what she's doing, although it doesn't say so specifically. But she is has taken the position of a mourner. She's sitting on the floor in the middle of the room, saying nothing, not responding to any kind of stimuli, withdrawn into herself in prayer and suffering. And she sits and she endures her own suffering for a period of time until you can release it and move on. I think there's probably a psychological plus to that. Uh, if you look into, I referenced Job last week. In Job, 
after his family dies, he does something very similar. He, he covers himself in sackcloth and ashes. He sits down in the ruin of his life and he just withdraws. And his friends come to him to try to comfort him, which is kind of what was happening here. He was going through his mourning for losing his family. And so that's where they were. And Martha, being the type A personality we know her to be, is still playing host to all this. Mary, the younger sister, is mourning her brother. And so she is sitting, and that's, and that's where that is. So Christ walks up. Martha leaves the house <clears throat> and meets Christ as he's approaching. And she meets him with both faith and what sounds a little bit like rebuke. Well, where are you, God? Yeah, yeah, I've, I've prayed that prayer. And then he says, I am the resurrection and the life, verse 25. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and, it lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? What if, what if Martha had said, you know he's dead, Lord? What if Martha hadn't believed him? They probably would have found dead bodies. <laughs> <laughs> now he cracks jokes. Uh, In a way, she halfway believed him. She believed the fact that he would rise from the dead at, at the end of, yeah. the, end of the time. But she didn't quite grasp the fact that he was talking about that he was the life and the resurrection. And really, she gave the very careful answer. Yeah, I agree. It seems like she's asking him if she can help him. She's like, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God who's coming to this world. Like, well, I believe this. I know this. Like, I've always been taught this. Yeah. Like, and then respond to me. Right? Right. But then it's, it's her brother, so, you know, it's like that puts a doubt in her. Well, he's been dead for four days. He's, he's in the tomb. He's stinking, to quote she, the Bible. Yeah, but she's seen Christ's miracles, I'm sure. Yeah, we all see miracles, but we still have it, it's faith and reason. Faith and reason. Faith yeah. and I'm reason. sure she's seen him not see miracles in some circumstances, too. Yeah, I mean, well, well I mean, my dad died in 2010. Bring him back to life now. But are you going to? Yeah. Probably not. And I know that. <laughs> I, know he's going to have I, I mean, it's, it's, you know, what are we supposed to do in that situation? <laughs> we just sit back. He's coming. Don't worry. He'll be dead. But it seems like she's still trusting him. See, my dad's been gone for 50 years now, so, you know. Let me say my controversial statement that's gotten me in trouble before. Go. Okay. <laughs> uh, no. Should I turn it off? Okay, I don't want you to lose your I paper. I had trouble with this one time already. What's the second time? Okay, fair enough. I have no faith in divine healing. No faith in divine healing. That's what Clayton Yek just said. Zero faith in divine healing. Zero faith in divine healing. Wow. Zero faith in... My faith is in Jesus Christ the healer. Ah. If he chooses to heal bring my dad back at the time when my dad died, that's, that's him. I have faith and I praise his name anyway. If he chose to let my dad stay dead and my dad, my dad goes to heaven... With him forever, 
truly healed up there, so be it. My faith is, if that's why people have the crisis of faith, because their faith is in divine healing. Because if your faith is in divine healing, then it has to happen every time. And by now we have figured out it does not happen every time. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, the healer, you go, I trust his decision. His decision, yeah. That's what, and trust me, it'll get me in trouble. But Jesus doesn't heal everybody. One way or another, he always heals, but it's just he, yeah. he either heals on this side or he heals on that side. Yeah. I mean, the big controversial thing about why aren't we raising people from the dead? I want to stay on record on this. If I die and I'm in heaven and one of you prays to bring me back to the life, I will hold it against you my entire life if I'm in heaven. Don't bring me back. <laughs> don't you dare bring I mean, if I die and I'm in heaven, don't you dare bring me back. I want to be in heaven. I feel like that was a dare. Don't you think that was a dare? We are, we are, we are, we are so totally going to have a prayer meeting. Go up, go up to my casket. And then everybody runs. There's another side to that, though. When If, if God ministers to your heart, call him back. And that, that, that's the faith in him. That's the faith in him, not the faith in the divine healing. Too many people in our charismatic movements have faith in divine healing, yeah. which that causes a problem when it doesn't happen. That's right, right. When you have faith in Christ, the God of healing, mm -hmm. who chooses, I choose to bring them on up here, mm -hmm. or I choose to bring them back to life. So be it, I'll praise your name either way. That's having faith in Christ the healer. She is amazing. She's amazing. Verse 28. After she had said this, uh, speaking of Martha, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. So she went in the house where I'm assuming Mary is doing her sitting thing and said, the teacher is here and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. And that's unusual if she's doing what I think she's doing. Uh, now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her, which are all of her friends and hired mourners, notice how quickly she got up and went out. Oh, wait, the boss that's paying me to mourn just ran out of the household. What do we do now, they say to themselves. So naturally they follow her. Uh, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there, which makes sense. So we're moving the funeral to the tomb. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell to her feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Again, with the accusational tone. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews had come along with her, so we've got a whole audience here, also weeping. Oh, wait, they're all weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? Come and see, Lord, they replied, and Jesus wept. If everybody in the room is crying, doesn't it make you get a little misty? Uh, Joe is not accepting this exact. Okay, I keep trying. I keep trying. Okay. Well, they said that Christ was a man of sorrow. 
And acquainted with grief. And acquainted with grief. So, I mean, it makes sense. And like I said, mine has a side note that says divine, he had divine sympathy. He was the king of heaven, thrower of perfection. He, he, knows, he knows why the earth was created sinless and perfect and to praise God. And here he's in the midst of a sinner. He sees the result. It's sorrowful what sin does to people. It's horrible. He knows that death enters because of sin. Yes, this is a, these people don't understand that this is a result of sin. This is, this is, I mean, like I said, I, I, I can accept it. If I go to heaven and the other, all the other things that are true about it, I can live. That doesn't have anything to do with my salvation. I'm just going, he was a, he's a 100% God and 100% man, basically. And the sorrow, the overwhelming thing of death and sin. And he's seen heaven. He's seen the throne room. He's seen perfection. He knows what creation was not created for this. The cemetery is not part of God's plans for creation. Sin brought that. So he sees like, this is what sin does to my children. Okay. So, let's get down to the main event. Verse 38. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. And they all went, oh, according to the gospel of Evans. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. And Jesus said, did not I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Is taking away the stone an evidence of belief? Because they're following through obediently. Isn't that show that you believe if you are obedient? I think that proves that they believe because they pulled the stone away. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. What an odd thing to say. Lord, thank you. You, you know I thank you. Just between you and me, I don't have to say that, but I'm going to say that so that they understand it. And he says that out loud so that everybody hears him say it. What? Doesn't it kind of imply that the whole situation is like an illustration? Yes. Or that John is trying to somehow make a point here. Doesn't the preachers do a prayer in church? Don't they record that comment? Because this is a district council when a preacher prays over the meal. Yeah, yeah. It turns into a three point, 15 minute uh -uh. prayer over food. Uh -uh. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> it's for the audience. It's not. Come on, thank you, Lord. You know, Lord, we thank you for the hands that grew this food. We thank you for what slaughtered the cow that we're eating. Thank you for the people serving. Thank you because you're in all of abundance and because you provide whenever. You created us the hunger and you give us nerve. Come on, that's a sermon, not a prayer. <laughs> Sometimes it's like, and thank you that when we do this, you do this. Yeah, it's like right. a Forty-three. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead men came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to him, take off the grave clothes and let him go. 
My father-in-law used to love this passage. I have probably listened to 15 different sermons all on those two passages right there. Think about if he hadn't said Lazarus, if he only said come And out. that's point number one <laughs> on the H.G. Hargrave sermon on Lazarus right there. So I guess you, you got it from the same place he did, huh? Uh, yeah, so... Do you think do you think everybody that had ever died would get up if he had just said come out and he didn't put a specific name on it? I think What if there's more than one dead Lazarus? Do you think maybe there were like another Lazarus yeah. on the other side of town? Are we talking more magic than miracle? Yeah, I think maybe. I think maybe. That argument is anyway. I think yeah. It's specific even like when he said let when God said let there be light, the world didn't catch Yeah, that's the second that's, half that's of the sermon. Yeah, right yeah, yeah. I can't make it out wrapped in a blanket out of bed without falling over. But I mean, <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure I've got all of the details on how grave clothes were done. In fact, I'm not sure it was completely standardized. So we don't really know exactly how this body was prepared. But they would tie the hands together. And that's actually across culture. Uh, they would tie the feet together and then they would wrap everything. And so, uh, and then there, there were oils and herbs that you put on the body, but, they, but the Jews did not embalm. They, 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 they weren't those Egyptians that would pump the blood out and do other stuff, you know. They didn't want that body to last forever. They were committing it to God and they were uh, uh, make, making it sanctified. But that, 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 that was all that their intention was. I guess you know, or, another issue because of that culture, they didn't embalm. Well, that body that's rotting, it bloats. It bloats. Okay. So you wrap it in cloth, and the body is still bloating because it hasn't been embalmed. Right. That makes it even more difficult to come hopping out of the grave. Oh, I see. So it's when they're brought back to life that the bloating disappears instantly. Which would loosen the bonds. I think we've written an, epi an excellent episode of The Chosen right here. We need to work on this. Yeah, okay. <laughs> his feet tied together stands up off of this flat uh, stone bed that he's got inside this tomb if it's typical and hops his way to the door and depending on how big of a tomb this is this could have been anywhere between 30 feet and 3 feet you know it just kind of depends probably bigger than he was oh, was he? Yeah, okay you say so um do we need to talk about the funeral? Story, okay, what now? I just have 
so many questions. The story ends right there. Like I want to hear. I want to see the rest of the story. Well, I think John gives us the implications of it, and we can infer a lot of it. Uh, this was a very big public resurrection that is undeniable because it was a prominent man. It was four days in. We had there were witnesses. There were hired witnesses who were not part of the Christian conclave. No no and uh you know there, there there were probably a pharisee or two around because again he's a wealthy man it's the middle of his funeral it doesn't say that but that's possible uh you know uh th th there wasn't any denying this now christ uh resurrected uh the daughter of the whoever it was before yes but that was a private matter in, inside the house and he kicked all the mourners out before, remember? And so he kind of controlled the public reaction there. This is a statement. And, trouble. Yes, and things changed. This is why John puts this in the, the scripture in this way, because the whole ministry, the whole relationship with Pharisees and Sadducees and the Romans all shift. And he's about to show you the specifics of that in this last sac section called the plot of Jesus. And I think we have just enough time to go through this. And so what happens is it goes from local Pharisees who have a big problem with Jesus preaching to their congregations and reporting and complaining to the temple who's going, yeah, we'll keep an eye on it to the high priest going, you know, boys, we need to do something about this. And not only that, but the high priest has given a prophecy in the temple that he interprets to mean God has told me to kill this man. And this is from the high priest. So suddenly it goes from local priest agitation to organized bureaucratic uh, suppression of Christ, you know, and so that it, and things heat up really quickly. So, having told you what I'm about to read, let's read the verses. Uh, verse 45, therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them that Jesus had done. Okay, maybe there weren't any Pharisees there then, yeah, sorry, messed up on that one. Then the priest, chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. So they've got both those little cults of priests together in the same room. What are we accomplishing, they asked. How is this man performing many miraculous signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away our place in our nation. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, and all the other years, by the way, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Ouch. This is from the chief priest. And here John explains it. He did not say this on his own, but as a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. 
So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. That was how they interpreted that prophecy. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he was withdrawn to a region near the desert to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremony of cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus. And as they stood in the temple area, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the feast at all? But the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he would report it so that they might arrest him. So Caiaphas, the head priest in the temple, gives a prophecy under the power of the Holy Spirit that this man is going to die for the people uh, to, for the Jews, and not only for the Jews, but for all of humanity. And Caiaphas knows that that's a prophecy from God. And all of these priests said, well, in that case, we need to kill him then, don't we? Was it something I said? Oh, yeah, was, was that what it was? Okay, bye, bye. Basically, he meant it one way, and they took it another way. Yes. Well, he, he gave this prophecy, and the prophecy is absolutely true, because Christ does die for the Jewish people and ultimately for everybody else. So he gives a truthful prophecy, but he, I don't think he understands his own prophecy. No, and he thought this was marching orders to go commit a murder. I mean, how, okay, how far gone does a preacher need to be when you think that God is telling you to commit murder? Of course, now that I said that, I can think of like 15 <laughs> examples. You, you're making me oh my word, I'm coming up with more examples. I take that back, internet. I apologize, internet. Obviously, there are lots of preachers that will kill for God and, and, and not necessarily for God. So, uh, yeah, that's where they are. And so at this point, Caiaphas, because he has come down saying, okay, we're, you know, we're, we're going to get rid of this man, and God wants us to kill him. So they put out an uh, all-points bulletin, and any kind of temple guard or Pharisee is authorized to arrest him if they find him. So the next time that Jesus just wanders into some guy wearing black robes, he's going to end up arrested. So he goes underground, and he starts slinking around from one uh, household to the next. Okay, slinking is probably too much, but you get the idea. Would Jesus slink? I don't think Jesus would slink. I would slink. Uh, sneaking around in the dark of night, not letting anybody see me slip into the house. Okay, Jesus slinked. <laughs> well, if there's a perfect, his time was not yet. He's not going to put himself out there to be caught, killed, die, killed, sneak into it. Yeah. Well, when Thomas said, you know, said, you know, maybe we shouldn't do that. He goes, you know, are there twelve hours of the day? We got work to do. Let's go. This isn't about who slinks. I do. I do. I think he gets a bad rap. He's an analytical man. He believes what he sees. So they say, Christ is arisen, and so Thomas says, uh, show me his hands. If he sees the hands, what did he say? Oh, gee, show me something else? No, he, he got down on his knees. That was all he needed. You know, show it to me. I, I he, was Missouri, he was from Missouri. A rabbit chased Thomas. A rabbit chased Thomas. <laughs> so, when I hear a miracle, so it was 
according to all of Christendom, you're dowdy when it comes to Thomas. So, so that's why I think he gets a bad rap. I don't think you're being dowdy. The pastor says, I just, this person says, I got healed from this disease, and he says, go to the doctor, get it verified. Is he doubting Thomas? I don't think so. I'm defending Thomas. I know. That's, I mean, that's why I said just don't yeah, ask yeah. that question. Oh, be disrespectful. But, well, I don't want to get shot. I don't want to get struck by lightning. But anyway, there are some ministers that make it hard for you to want to go to a doctor or anything else because they make they, they make you feel like you're sinning by going to a doctor instead of having faith in, in God. You know, and I think that causes a lot of confusion with people. Well, I think, but I go back to my point. There's a lot of confusion in the charismatic movement when someone tells me I'm supposed to believe something happened miracle-wise. I said, "Well, I, I, okay, yeah, good. I'm just show me. Yeah, show me the miracle before I go preach it. Right. You know, like the like the hole in the hell in Siberia. You know. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Sorry, I don't buy it. I don't believe it. Just show me some more evidence. And you just well, I heard it on TBN. Oh, that's the bastion of truth. I'm sorry, I, know this, I know where this is coming from. I've had the same argument with the same person. Okay, all right. I'm not going to mention her name. No. It's you know that that's coming back out. It's being preached again the next. What more holes in the hell? All those little. They put the microphone down the hole in Siberia and they heard the scream from hell. Oh. That's being preached. Everything comes back. It's now being preached on by. Charismatic movement people saying we've heard hell's recording, and that's impossible. It didn't happen. It was made up by a guy in Norway. He admits I made this up to prove Christians will believe anything. And sure enough, he fell for it. <laughs> so, no, he once, but more than once. No, he, I, this was started in the 60s, and it comes back every 10 years. And the guy in Norway said, he says, I, it's an atheist. He says, I, I put that story out because Christians will fall for it, and every decade they fall for it. The, the, the microphone in the hell that they were building an oil well you don't build it that far deep and a microphone's not going to survive that heat but they put them why were they putting a microphone in a hole I don't know but they and they said they got the recordings from hell and they, they shut it down and they all got saved and, and speaking from a position of expertise when you drill an oil well it's not necessarily straight yeah, down it's sure. often doing this it's business yeah Okay, and, and with that, we are wrapping up. Uh, we will look at verse 12, I, I mean chapter 12 next time. And we have already talked about the anointing at Bethany, so we were going to give that all of three minutes, and then we were going to move on to the triumphal entry. And, uh, and things start, should, should start wrapping up. Triumph. Triumph. Okay, uh, goodbye, Internet. <laughs>